Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. I'm going to introduce you to a buddy of mine. This is Jeff Nine. Um, Jeff is a friend and got to know him when I moved here. In fact, when you know I moved here and had this idea, you guys have heard the story of wanting to plant a church called Redemption. And I'd looked out, I'd looked at all the websites, looked at all this stuff, like no one had it. There wasn't a Redemption OKC. I could do this thing in Oklahoma City. There's not a Redemption church here. I moved here and went to go buy it and it was gone. <laughs> I was like, seriously, in two weeks, the name of the church I had, the logo, the little, uh, the little sketch you guys have seen, the, you know, I drew this like logo sketch on a napkin, all that. It's like, man, I just have to flush it all and start over now, I guess. And the reason was this guy had bought the name and bought the website and bought all the stuff and was thinking of planting a church. And so uh, we got to know each other and uh, we arm wrestled and I won. And so we got to call <laughs> wait, it Redemption. Wait a minute. Oh, that wait a minute. That's not how that I'll tell you the real story in a little bit. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. He's, he's independently wealthy now because we paid him for it. No, uh, he actually shifted gears and ended up giving us that name. We were able to call our church Redemption. Uh, he took that nasty little sketch of a logo that I had put on a napkin and he actually designed this logo. He actually does graphic design work as well. And so Jeff is the one who designed our official logo and our original church website. Isn't that cool? Um, now Jeff works at Frontline Church and really is invested in church planting. Uh, in fact, leaves for India tomorrow to look at a church plant in Mumbai and really is a part of church planting, not just here in, in, city, in the city, in the state of Oklahoma, really all, all around and is really connected in that world. And has just been a really good friend to me over the last six years as we've kind of planted this church and been on this journey together. And, uh, and also just as a really deep thinker and a really, uh, really good guy that is going to bless us today as he comes to preach. So I'm going to get out of your way. Let's Thanks, preach. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Hey, it is really, really good to be here um, this morning. I love, um, you know, I, being, a, being a pastor, I love doing that, but I work a lot, as Jeff said, with with church plants and church planters <clears throat> in a lot of different places, uh, but rarely do I actually get to be with one of those churches on a Sunday. So I spend a lot of time with the church planters and stuff like that through the week, uh, and, and I love it. Don't tell, don't tell the people at Frontline that I love it when I get to leave, but I love it when I get to, to, to jump in with these churches that, um, that really mean a lot to me, and I feel like I've walked with in some ways and seen God's work through these leaders here and uh, leaders in other church plants, and just to see what God's done, and then to be able to go and celebrate on a Sunday. And so thank you for letting me be here. Here. Uh, it's an honor for me to be here, and, uh, and I really enjoy uh, getting the opportunity. Um, this morning, um, we're going to be um, we're going to be looking at a passage in Second Corinthians. So, if you go if you get your Bibles, go ahead and pull that out. I want to read this. Uh, it's a little bit of a longer uh, a little bit of a long section here. I want to read for us, and then pray, and then we're gonna we're gonna dive in and see what God. Uh, might do, but I want to I want to say this. Like uh, I don't know what you I don't know who's in the room uh, in in terms of some of you I've met, some of you I haven't, but I I know that there's likely in a setting like this there are some of you that uh, man you've been following Jesus for a really long time, and um, and you you you've been through the ups and downs of life, 
um, but, but you, you, you've been captivated by the love of God. Some of you in this room uh, have, you know about the love of God, and, and if somebody were to, were to ask you, do you know of God's love for you? You'd say, yes, I do. But in one sense for you, it's still just kind of a mental thing. It hasn't actually seeped down into your heart and captivated you. And there's likely there's some people in this room that are going, I'm, I'm actually just not quite sure um, of God or of his love for me. And so wherever you're coming into this room, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to set aside just a second for, for what life might be looking like around you, whether you're in a season that's just really amazing or whether you're in a season that's really hard, to, to, to for a moment ask God to speak to where you are to answer those questions that you have, to, to address some of the things that you may be carrying into this room. And so let's start. We're gonna look at 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter four, verse 16. Chapter four, verse 16. And this is what Paul writes. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this Light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He goes on, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. For we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yet, yes, we are of good courage and we would always be away. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Now listen to this, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we, are known, um, but what we are is known to God. We hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you would be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now listen to this, verse 14. For the love of God controls us. Let me read that again. For the love of God controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whose their sake he died and was raised. Let's pray. God, I'm asking that you would help us see here what it means to be captivated by the love of God. That no matter where we find ourselves in life, that we know that your love is for us. And for those that that love is merely a cognitive uh, thing, God, would you sink it deep into our hearts? For those that came in doubting that love or skeptical of that love, God, would you show them um, what that love looks like? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
many of you, uh, I've met a few of you. I don't know a lot of you. Let me just introduce uh, myself um, by saying this. Uh, hi, my name is Jeff Nine, and I am a curmudgeon. Yes, my wife says so too. Matter of fact, my wife reminds me of this all the time. Now, you may, sit, may know me and go, you don't act that curmudgeonly. And I just say, hang on, you'll, you'll figure that out eventually. So in all the curmudgeonliness I can muster, let me, let me, let me let you all know something that I, have, I am fully persuaded of, persuaded of at this moment, and that is this, that Western civilization as we have known it is dead. Western civilization, it had a good run. Western civilization had a great run, but it is over. Now, Western civilization has been opposed by many, many different uh, enemies along the way, but I'm convinced that there's one that is the most, uh, the most responsible for the death of Western civilization, and that is this, romantic comedies. I'm telling you, romantic comedies have destroyed civilization. They've destroyed civilization. You see, the basic structure of a romantic comedy is this, and we're all aware of it. We, the reason we watch them is because we kind of want to escape from reality for a little bit, right? Because what happens in a rom-com? In a rom-com, everything's bad. Now, I'm going to date myself in just a little bit, but you know, it, it might be that life is really bad because you own a small little bookstore and it's being dominated by the big box store that's coming in nearby. It, it might be that, the, that life is really miserable and, and you can't sleep at night, but you have this weird fascination with radio programs late at night. Uh, it, it might be, it might be um, I don't even know what the new rom-coms are, so I can't even tell you how those start. But, but in them, life's just not right. Something's off. And then the one, right? Right. You just happen to walk around the corner and all of a sudden you catch the eye. So, something magical. And, and the entire mood of the movie changes because the musical score changes. And now all of a sudden, whoa, what's about to happen? And so now for the rest of the movie, there, there are tears chasing after laughter back and forth, back and forth. But we all know where we're going, don't we? We all know we're going to end in a happily ever after. And then we go home and we say, oh, that's so awesome. When's mine coming? Right? Right? I mean, we escape sometimes from life, running to a rom-com in order to get away from the stuff that we feel. I mean, how can you be content with anything else? How can you be content with anything else? See, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan have ruined us. And yes, I just dated myself with that. I don't know who the current rom-com stars are. You can add your own names in there. For me growing up, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, that's the epitome of rom-coms and they've destroyed our ability to be content with life. Because here's what I, here, in, the midst of, in the midst of the laughter, here's why I wanna say that. I do a lot of pastoral counseling and I'll tell you, there's often that I spend a lot of time doing counseling, walking with people through suffering and through difficulties who are honestly just waiting for their happily ever after to come along, or they're living with the profound shame and brokenness of it never having come. Because what happens is in our escape into this world, we actually begin to think that that's what life ought to look like. That somehow, if you just hang on long enough, something magical will appear, everything will get better, you get your happily ever after, that's what it means that God loves me. And when I don't get that, I begin to question if God actually loves me. And when life doesn't end up with the magical moment, I begin to actually, 
I, I begin to go, maybe God's not real. Maybe he doesn't really love me. Maybe I'm on the outs with him and he just loves somebody else. When we don't get our happily ever after, we feel gypped. But the beauty about the Bible is that the Bible speaks to our experiences. It doesn't speak to Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. It speaks to us. And 2 Corinthians brings us into life as it really is. Life as it really is. Now, if I go to 2 Corinthians and we, and we were to read the book right now, you would find that the tone is a little heavy. It's a little somber. And the reason is because life, honestly, is a little somber and a little heavy at times, isn't it? We've all experienced this. It doesn't shy away from the difficulties that we uh, face. At the beginning of the book, it talks, uh, it talks often about how much suffering and, and difficulty can, uh, is, is afflicting the, the Corinthian church. So Paul is writing to an actual church in an actual time and an actual place that has walked through intense kinds of sufferings to the point where many of them want to give up. Many of them have been waiting for happily ever after. It hasn't come and they're struggling to hold on. And Paul's writing to them and, and is gonna talk to them about how to endure in that kind of life. He'll go on a, a couple chapters in the book and, and compare us to, to jars of clay, that, that there were these pots that, that, um, that look great on the outside but were really fragile and this pressure's coming from every side threatening to crack the pot, which you ever feel that way? You ever feel that way? You ever feel like the pressures of life are pushing so hard you just don't know if you're gonna make it? Well, well, Paul reminds us we all feel that way. That in fact, we actually are these, uh, we are treasures in these jars of clay surrounded by threatening pressures. He goes on to talk about how much suffering has infected his own life. And matter of fact, as Paul, as Paul, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ called by God to take the, take the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, this is a massive call. And you think if God loves anybody, it's gotta be Paul, right? I mean, Jesus, but also Paul. Like, the love of God for Paul has to be immense, and yet we, we see towards the end of the book, he recounts the struggles and the pains and the brokenness of life that he's had to go through. And it's, it's more than any of us would wanna step into The whole book is also full of an emotional weight because you can sense in it, and he, he opens up about it, that there's a relational strain right now between Paul and some of the people in the Corinthian church. They're upset with Paul. And he comes in and he feels that weight. But here's the beauty. The Bible teaches us what it means to face life like it really is. You see, the Bible is not a story of how to find your best life now. It's not. The Bible teaches us what it means to walk through life as it really is. It teaches us how to endure faithfully. At the end of the book, I'm just gonna read this. This is how Paul ends the book of 2 Corinthians. These are the final verses. Finally, brothers, rejoice. So even in the book, even as he's been talking about the sufferings and the difficulties of life, he says this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
All all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you. See, Paul doesn't, as he's talking through the difficulty of life, he doesn't end on this sour note, somber note. He actually ends with the most beautiful invitation we could have is to a deep experience of the love of God. So here's the question is how does he get there? How does he get there? And in in one sense, how do we get there? So I want us to go back to where we were in 2 Corinthians 5, and let's look again at verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Listen to this. For the love of God controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who uh, for their sake died and was raised. Some translations there say that the love of God constrains us. So what does this mean? Because in our day and age, control just doesn't seem like something we actually want to give up, does it? It doesn't seem like something we want to give up. We don't actually want something to control. We don't want something to constrain. So here's the question. How can this actually be good news? How can the good news that in the midst of whatever life's throwing at us, we're controlled by the outside? How is that good news? Uh, Because for 21st century Westerners, we love freedom, don't we? Can I get an amen? Do you guys amen here? Come on, amen. All right. I just try to make sure everybody's alive out there. We want freedom. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want anybody deciding what happens in my life. Why? Because I've got a happily ever after. I'm chasing and doggone I'm going to get there. I want to control my life. I want to control my destiny. And if I have to control you along the way, I will. I just don't want to be controlled. It's kind of the essence of what it means to be an American, right? We like freedom. But here's the problem. When life turns upside down, how many of you ever feel like you're in control? None of you do. You know why? Because you're not. You're not in control. Because when life gets swirling, there are all kinds of things that step in and try to control us. Fears. Fears control. They captivate. They, they, we tend to make decisions, not because we wanted to make that decision, but because we, we're trying to avoid that fear that's, that's coming after us, Right? Anxieties build in our our minds and they drive us, they compel us into actions. When we look at this, we find addictions control us, other people control us, we don't feel free. But here the text actually gives us good news that there's something else that can control us. That apart from being, instead of being controlled by fear, Instead of being controlled by anxieties, instead of being controlled by addictions or other people, we can be controlled by what? What did the text say? The love of God. The love of God controls us. The love of God controls us. See, when life turns upside down, we grasp at control. This text, though, is telling us that something else controls us. We're being invited into this. Now, I do want to say this. This control is not like in a marionette uh, controlled by a puppeteer. Okay, so we've all seen that. We've seen Pinocchio. So it's such a disturbing, weird film. Why do we send that to children? Hey, children, if you disobey, you become a donkey. Like, that's just, that's just weird that that's a kid's movie. But we see, see, see the puppeteer, and he's got the strings, and he's controlling the puppet and making the puppet dance. 
This is not the kind of control that we're talking about. We're not talking about God's love coming in and starting to control you like a puppet. That was weird. I don't know why I did that. (laughs) I can't dance, can I? That's not the kind of control we're talking about. What kind of control are we talking about, though? I think the text will introduce us into a different kind of control. This is what the text here is going to tell us is that God's love controls us as it does four things. As it locates us, as it comforts us, as it compels us, and as it captivates us. And yeah, if I was better with the thesaurus, they would have all started with C, but they don't. Four things, it locates us, it comforts us, it compels us, and it captivates us. Let's look at them in turn. The love of God locates us. Go back to chapter four, verse 16. I wanna read this, read a couple verses here. So we do not lose heart. So Paul has already gone through the fact that life has hard at times. Suffering is a reality and we're constantly being, uh, we're constantly being um, uh, confronted with reality as it is. But he says this, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may uh, not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Why do I say the love of God locates us? What Paul's trying to help us understand is where we really are. We're not in a rom-com, nor are we in Macbeth, though it feels like it at times. Life is tragic, but tragedy doesn't get the last word. Matter of fact, there might actually be something to be said that rom-coms get something right, that in the end, one comes and and brings peace, but we're we're, going to get there a little bit later. Um, That the fact is, we're not caught in this thing that's just destined to turn out as a happily ever after, nor are we destined to end in a play that ends where everybody dies. That what God says is that even though we are surrounded now by swirling things in life, that's not the end. That where we are is caught up in a larger story. Paul wants to locate us in reality, and he does this by reminding us that we're wasting away. And we go, thanks, Paul, for the encouragement. That's really nice. But why is, why, why, why is he talking like this? He, he's trying to get our eyes off of the things that are immediately surrounding us and remind us that something much bigger is going on. He reminds us that while our body is wasting away, our spirit is actually being renewed. So at the very same time that we feel the wasting away of life, we find that life by God is being renewed. He reminds us that these, what he calls momentary and light afflictions, they don't get the last word because God is preparing an eternal glory beyond anything that we can comprehend. He's reminding us that things that we see are transient, but there are things that are eternal that we are actually caught up in. 
So here's the thing. Sometimes we have to get our eyes out of where we feel dominated and look up. Look up and see that we're actually a part of something bigger, that God's actually at work in ways we may not quite understand at this moment. He locates us in reality. We are neither on, our, on a train destined for this happily ever after, nor are we on this train just aimed for doom and destruction. We are in a, in a, in a life where life swirls around, but God is working out good for all who know him and all who have been captivated by his love. God is actually at work at working on a happily ever after, even if it's not in this life. That there's something bigger that God is at work in. He locates us in reality. But let's be honest for just a second. It, it sometimes doesn't feel like this brings peace in the moment because it's one thing to go, okay, in the sweet by and by, Jesus is gonna do some work and all of a sudden things are gonna get better now but, or later, but what about now? What about, well, what about when life hurts now? Go to verse six. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I'm curious here about his choice of the word courage. Be of good courage. Why? In what ways can I be in the midst of the swirl of life when life is raging, when life is hard, how can I be of good courage? Well, if we'll back up just a little bit to the beginning of the book, 2 Corinthians 1, why don't you turn there with me? We're actually gonna see why we are to be of courage. Why we are to be of great courage. Starting in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, listen to this, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, let me say it again, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, the text does not act like suffering is something that just happens because you haven't made it, too, you haven't made it far enough into your rom-com. That you're in a life where suffering is a reality. but they're Christ's sufferings too. So through Christ, we will share abundantly in comfort too. So just as Christ suffered, we suffer. But just as Christ was comforted, we are comforted. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. When life looks threatening, it's really hard to be courageous unless you know you're not alone, 
and you know that you've got a power greater than the threat on your side, right? This is the invitation of the text. The invitation of Paul here. See, see, Paul doesn't shy away from the difficulty of life. He doesn't act like um, if something's going wrong, it's just because of your sin or it's because of, of something that happened wrong in the universe. He's actually saying that suffering, he locates it in, in our suffering is pulled up into the sufferings of Jesus such that we're not suffering alone or suffering is not an anomaly. Suffering in this sense is, is being pulled up into Christ. But just as God the Father comes to God the Son and comforts him in that suffering, so he comforts us. He, he comforts us in a, in a way that reminds us that we're not alone and that the love of God has not abandoned us. I mean, if we were to, if we were to ask, who does God love most? We could get into a lot of heresy really fast if we tried to answer that question by, well, let's rank them. But if he loves anybody, it's his son, right? And his son suffered and yet was comforted. So as we suffer, we are comforted. As we suffer, we are comforted. And that goes on to verse eight. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. Not shying away from it. We've experienced affliction, he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Okay, so this is Paul, the apostle of Jesus, sent to preach good news to the entire Roman Empire. And he says, we about gave up. It got bad. We about gave up. It got bad. And yet, he says this, indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, it's to remind us that we are not the strength we need. God's strength is what we need. So God comes to us, comforts us, reminds us that he is with us, and then infuses what we need in the moment. It says this, verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. How can you engage life with courage? By being comforted. By being comforted and being taught to rely on the grace of God. So God's love locates us and it comforts us towards the end of living courageous. But it, it's not over, it's not done. Paul keeps going. Chapter five, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in the right minds, it is for you. I wanna look at that first verse there. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You see, this love of God locates us in reality. This love of God comes to us and comforts us towards courage, but it also compels us Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It compels us. Now, of course, you may be going, hang on, Jeff. 
um, you just read the text and it doesn't say God's love compels us. If anything, it just says the fear of the Lord, the fear of God compels us. So what gives? Let's go back a couple of chapters and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his eyes so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when we turn to the Lord, the veil is Removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, that may seem kind of confusing. Let me explain for just a minute. If you're not familiar with uh, Exodus, in the book of Exodus, God raises up um, Moses. Charlton Heston, if you're old, I don't know if who if you're new or if you're younger. Um, But he raises up Moses because God's people who he had called and set his love upon. So these are the people that God has said, I have chosen you and put my affection on you. I love you beyond, uh, beyond the others around. And they find themselves for 400 years as slaves in Egypt. Now, again, we could go, how, where's God's love right now? But we do know God loved the Israelites. And so he sends Moses, after God hears the cry of his people, he sends Moses to deliver them out. Moses goes into Egypt, and it took a little while, but eventually Pharaoh let them go, and they they leave Egypt, and they end up on a mountain. And on this mountain, God appears to Moses and at multiple times, he talks to Moses as, um, as it says, like as a person would talk to a person in such a way that the glory of God was so intense that his face glowed. Glowed, glown, glows? I don't know. I'm not an English teacher. I don't know how to conjugate that. It glowed so much so that he had to put a veil over his face. In other words... Had he not, the people would have been knocked backwards by a reflection of the glory of God. In other words, God's love for his people put on display for Moses was such that it was so intense, he had to veil his own face so that the other people wouldn't be knocked on their feet because when you see the love and the glory of God, your knees will knock and you can't stand. In other words, this... God's love is so intense that you can't even stand in its presence. You will tremble. You will be afraid. That's the love of God that, God, that, that we're invited into. It tells us that when we know Jesus, the veil is lifted and we get to behold God's glory in ways that we never imagined possible before. And when we see that one, we are compelled, sent out to tell other people about this love of God because it is transformative. It's transformative. You can't live life the same way after you've experienced this love. As you've seen this love, it transforms. 
This is why when it talks about the fear of the Lord and the love of God, these are not mutually exclusive. The love of God actually leads us to a place of understanding that, that this God is the one to be reverenced, respected, and even feared. Now, I would love to say that I have beheld the love of God with, with such, in such a way as to, to be so compelled that I never run after my own way of life. But it's just not true. That I want to experience the love of God in a way that it does that. But I can say this, that the more I see, the more I behold, the more I experience the love of God, the more I'm invited into that, it changes me and it compels me more and more as I encounter it. That is the invitation of this text. It's to say, come near to that love and that love will transform you and compel you. The invitation is to draw near knowing that we always need to continue to draw near. So God's love locates us, it comforts us, it compels us, and lastly, it captivates us. Let's go back to where we started, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Now listen to this very carefully. Because... For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This because in, chapter four, in verse 14 is huge. We are controlled not as, a, not as a puppeteer controls the marionette. That's not how we're controlled. We are controlled because we are captivated. We have concluded, not because our will is overridden, not, not because God dangles fear in our face that tries to drive us, not because he shames us into compliance. We are, we are uh, caught up into this love we are controlled by this love because we have concluded that God really does love us because, really, because God really did send Jesus to die in our place. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is essential for understanding the love of God. You cannot comprehend the love of God apart from the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is, what the biblical, this is what the Bible tells us over and over and over again. Do you want to see the love of God? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what it means that God loves you? Look to the cross of Jesus. Because when, when life was spinning, when life was broken due to sin of, sin of our lives, sin of the people around us, when life is swirling, God could very easily just walk away and go, wow, that's messy. I don't want anything to do with that. But that's not how God steps towards us. God steps towards us by sending Jesus to die. Why? To take our death. In other words, the death that we deserved, God came, sent Jesus to absorb. 
And he absorbed our death simply so that he could give us the life that we never deserved. When we see that, when we are captivated by that love, it changes us. It changes us. The love of God changes us. And it changes us as we see it in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So here's, here's where I want to, here's where I want to wrap up. I said this at the beginning, that some, some in this room, um, you've, you have tasted the love of God really deeply and truly. You have tasted it. And you might, be in a, you might be in a place in life where, man, this just felt like a little bit of a Debbie Downer moment. And you're like, man, actually life was really good until I walked in and you remind me of suffering's coming. But, but you're, you're, in a, you're in a stage of life where actually it, it, life feels really good. I'm, I'm glad, enjoy that moment. You don't have to feel shame. But some of you have tasted this love of God, but you're actually in a period of suffering right now or you're about to enter into a period of suffering in which that's gonna get tested. Five years ago, I got a diagnosis that tested this for me. Jeff was there to walk with me through that season. And it's, it was a hard one. It was a hard one because I had to look at reality and go, does Jesus actually love me? Does God really love me in this moment? Because right now, this feels scary. Death feels like it's on my doorstep. But the love of God located me and it reminded me that this isn't the end, that no, my body is wasting away and it's still wasting away. The diagnosis hasn't gone away. This, the, this wasting away is here. God is still at work to renew my spirit and one day will take off this clothes and give me new clothes. That's reason to rejoice, that God has loved me so much to locate me in that reality. And the grace of God, the love of God came to me and comforted me in that moment. There were many, many, many tears shed. There will still be more tears coming. And yet his comfort came through friends and community and through just, just work by his spirit. It compelled me. I now want to tell other people, especially when they're walking through spirits of, spirits of suffering, is to go, hey, let's look to Jesus together. And this only happens the more and more I'm captivated by this love. For some of you, the love of God is a cognitive thing. You, 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 you theoretically, if, if I gave you a test and asked you about God's love, you could give me all the right answers, but you actually haven't experienced that love. What this text is not doing is here to shame you. It's to invite you. It's not to shame you, it's to invite you. Instead of feeling shame for how you haven't experienced this, instead of comparing yourself to somebody else, instead of going, when I look at them, they seem to enjoy the love of God and I don't, and to pull back in shame, the invitation of the text is actually to step forward and to experience this love because God came after you. We sang that in the very first song today, that this love of God pursues and comes after us. It invites us to experience it. And if you were to say this, I don't know if I believe this, Jeff. I don't know if I believe this. That I'm just praying that by the Spirit of God, you will. Because I can't open your eyes to see it, but the Spirit of God can. And I can't change your heart to see it, but God's Spirit can.
And so I'm praying that today the Holy Spirit would speak to you and would help you see that this love of God is not mere information or data, but it is a deep, profound, undergirding truth that, that gives you a strong foundation for all of life. Because in the end, I guess I got to conclude the rom-coms at least got that one point right. That in the end, that love changes stuff. Maybe Western civilization isn't over after all. But I do know this, that if what we're doing is looking for a way to get our happily ever after by controlling life or controlling others, you're going to fail. But if instead this love of God so locates you, comforts you, compels you, and and captivates you that it controls you, then you're going to find that the very thing that God has been working out to bring life into your life is in fact happening. And he will finish what he started. And so my prayer for you, my prayer for Redemption Church, is that you would be a people, you would be a community so captivated by this love that it controls you. That when life swirls, you're held. And that when you can't see anything but the mess in front of you, the love of God will lift your eyes and show you the love of God that is for you. Let's pray. God, I, I ask that you by your spirit, would speak to us. And those in the room who have reasons they think to doubt this love, God, would you, by your spirit, speak to them, draw near to them. God, those that need to be comforted today, would you comfort them? And for those that need to be captivated by your love, maybe again, Maybe for the first time, God, would you captivate? And we're asking you, Holy Spirit, to help us see with unveiled faces this captivating love of God. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.